Would you like to live in a sinless perfection? Oh, amen. (laughs) How do we do that? (laughs) Why don't we? That's my next question. That's exactly what I was going to say. Why don't we do that? I said, how do we do that? (laughs) How do we do that? That is the question uh, I think that we would all have, isn't it? Yeah. Well, um, do you guys like controversy? No. No. I didn't think so. Nobody likes controversy. There's some people that really thrive on it, I think. I really believe that, but I'm not so sure why they would. But uh, we are at a point in the book of Romans that is really one of the most controversial sections in the whole Bible. Now, chapter 9 is pretty controversial, too. But here it is in chapter 7, the last half of it. And uh, Bible students, believers, all Christians really are severely divided on this section we're at this morning. So, uh, one Christian from uh, to another Christian, and they can be in the same denomination, they can be in the same church that they attend and worship with, and have different angles of views on this. I will tell you that I believe it's one of the most practical sections not only of Romans, but the entire Bible. It's very practical. And that question that we uh, just asked, would uh, we like to live in a sinless perfection? And uh, why don't we, or how do we do that? Uh, this really lends great support to how to live this Christian life that is so filled with our sin. And so that is why, I guess, Christians will even fight over this text, but I think this text is a great answer to what the normal Christian life really is. Uh, How can I get victory over sin? Isn't that what we want? We want to have victory over sin, and completely and ultimately. We want to live a triumphant Christian life, and of course they used to have seminars How to live the victorious Christian life. Nothing wrong with that uh, idea. We want to live a victorious Christian life. That's what we're about, I mean, in the sense, isn't it? But they would have these uh, seminars where they would uh, be telling people a secret. The secret of the Christian life and such. Well, honestly, we've already seen the position of the Christian We've seen that in chapter 5 and chapter 6 and even going right on into chapter 7. We've seen that uh, all the way through this. And the position is that we have been freed from sin, that we are dead to sin, that sin and death no longer have a mastery over us. Uh, We are no longer under the law but under grace and we looked at that last week. Uh, we wonder then, well, why do I have this problem of sin? I have such a battle. Why do I think, do the things that I do? And why do I not do the things that I should be doing? Why do I do the things that I am doing that I ought not to do? And do the things that I should do? I'm sure that's as clear as a bell, right? Uh, does that get your attention, though? 
it should really get our attention because this affects every one of us. Now, back to the controversy. What is the controversy about it? You mentioned that, Dennis. Okay. What is it? Well, I will say there are four, at least four major different views of this text from 14 through the end of the chapter. And the first view is the view that uh, this is Paul and he's an unbeliever at this text here. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. And then we'll read this here pretty shortly. But this interpretation here says it's before Paul became a Christian. He's not a believer. And uh, we would ask, well, who is this man? I really believe it is Paul. But I'll all say all the way through it that it also is you and me. It's the Christian. No matter if they are a young Christian, an older Christian, immature or mature, um, what we're going to do is take an interpretation of each one of these views. And we'll explain the each of these views. This first view I've already said it's like an unbeliever. And then we're going to delve in, after we go through the four interpretations, we're going to delve into the exposition of our text. Which you'll notice is quite lengthy, and we could have done it in two weeks, three weeks, a month. Uh, I'm going to venture to try to go ahead and do it in one week. Uh, And that's a rather uh, impossible situation, but we'll see what we can do with it. The first view says it's an unbeliever. And when you look at some of the verses, you can say, oh, I see what they're talking about. In verse 14 of Romans 7, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage into sin. Well, that sounds contradictory to what we have been discussing in the last couple of chapters. It says... I'm a flesh sold into bondage into sin. And so therefore, wouldn't that be a good reason to say this is an unbeliever? Sold into bondage into sin. Because you'll know in chapter 6, 17, and 18, it's speaking of a believer here. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, and, and what's the word there? Were slaves of sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So, what is he saying there? Free from sin. Right? No longer slaves of sin. And so, this interpretation that's saying that Romans 7 is an unbeliever would be a pretty good point, wouldn't it? And we know that in verse 18 of Romans 7, it says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the And so we'll stop there. Nothing good dwells in me. Well, if you're a Christian, you have Christ. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. So they would use that text. Well, it's a good point. This is difficult, folks, but I think it's very easy as we work through all of this. So hang on, we're going to get it. 
oh, verse 24, right near the end of this text, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? Ah, uh, well that sounds like an unbeliever. He's a wretched man. Would a Christian ever say that he's a wretch? Well, John Newton did. <laughs> he sang a song about it, didn't he? Amazing Grace. Well, anyway, most Christians really wouldn't go around calling themselves, I'm a wretch, I'm a wretch. Well, the thing is, throughout this text, what unbeliever though also would say, I have the desire to do what is good. I have a desire. Do you know any unbelievers that really want to do the things of the Lord? I mean, really. I mean, that's their motive, right? Uh, they say, like in verse 16, they delight in the Lord. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Um, in verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Oh, we're getting into inner man here. Joyfully concur with the law of God. I am joyful about it. Does it is an unbeliever joyful about and delighting in the law of the Lord? In really delighting in Christ? Uh, does he have an inner man? So, I, I want to give the biggest point that it is not an unbeliever. Because all throughout here, you'll notice... That as Paul is saying, I, uh, I, it's me, right? Mine. Uh, what he is, he's saying, this is me. And you'll notice that it says, I am a flesh. What I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing. You can go all the way through here. And you can get the tense real easy. Is it past tense or is it present tense? I am doing what I don't want to do. I am not doing what I ought to do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Uh, we'll see all the way through out here. Is it past tense? No. It is present tense. Paul is speaking. In the present tense. When he wrote this, was he an unbeliever or a believer? Well, that is why we hammer on the tense of it. Now, J.I. Packer says that Paul moves from his pre-Christian days to his experience at the time of his writing. That means this was his experience. This is what he is going through. When he wrote this, he was Christian. He was going through the same battles that we do. Well, I'm already giving away what I'm already going to teach. What I'm going to understand here is what I'm going to teach you. You say, why are you giving us ideas of the other ones then? They have good points. We just saw the, the good point that was made there in the number one one is that it's an unbeliever, but they have problems with the ones we just came back with, right? Uh, I think we can explain the problematic verses that they're using but let's go to the second view. They will say, this is the carnal Christian. It's a Christian, but they're carnal. 
oh, there's difference. There's people that are carnal and then there are spiritual Christians, right? Well, we're all spiritual. Although Paul does use that fact of carnal, which is fleshly. You're acting fleshly. You're you're acting like an unbeliever. Flesh is sarks. A lot of times it can mean this body, this flesh that is here. Jesus Christ came in the flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's physical. But sarks is also something that would be dealing with the fleshly, mortal body or something that is of not of the Spirit of God. That is sarks. Uh, anyway, they're saying you can be a sarks Christian. Not even look like a Christian. I think it, really what it is, it's a cheap salvation. It's a cheap sanctification. It's a cheap grace, which doesn't exist anyway. Either you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. The carnal Christian is what they would say is immature, and Paul is immature at this point when he's writing. That's what they say. He was immature because you'll notice, they they will say this, he focuses on me, myself, and I. And you'll see that all the way through there. Me, I, myself, right? This Paul, was he immature at this time? No, I disagree. He was not immature at all. He's very mature. Uh, but what they're saying, see, he wasn't relying on the Holy Spirit. That what is it found in chapter 8, by the way. Chapter 8, verse 1. Next week, folks. <laughs> Can't wait. I, I love that idea of the way that that starts out. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we'll get on with that. It's the most joyful chapter, I do believe, that's in all the Bible. It's the diamond it's the jewel that sticks out in, of the entire Bible. It gleams. And we're going to spend a lot of time in chapter 8. You want to be encouraged? I invite you to start reading Romans 8 again and uh, we will have a joy. Well, two views that I am ruling out is that it's an unbeliever or that it's a carnal Christian. A third one is interesting. It is... One that Martin Lloyd-Jones purports. And I really thank the Lord for Martin Lloyd-Jones for so much. And I'm getting a lot of blessings and I'm getting a lot of information that I am gleaning from him as I go through his commentaries on Romans. I use a lot of him him, and uh, it's almost like a majority sometimes. Uh, I can't agree with what his view is here. He called, and there's other people that I have, and it's not that they're sinful in uh, taking this angle. I just say that I disagree because he says this is uh, not an unregenerate person, and it's not a regenerate person. Now you're going, what in the world is that? You're either a believer or you're not a believer, right? Now we're really getting confused. Uh, Well, I think we can get an idea of what he's saying. He is one who is under heavy conviction of sin. And he's right on the verge of placing his trust in Christ. Jones says this is the one who is awakened to his own personal lawlessness. He's convicted. 
And he is now awakened to this. He's not yet become a participator, can I use that word, in the new life of Christ. He's not yet participating in that. He's this close. He's not yet revived. Not yet a Christian. He's still living in his own strength, but all oh, so much he wants to be. Um, there's still a, a problem with this. The problem with this view is, first of all, I don't think it takes into account the past tense that's found in the first 13 verses to the present tense. The present tense to me is really a key point. Paul is writing, and he's like putting it in that tense. Now, Jones says this, that the change really is of no importance as far as the present or past tense. Uh, No importance at all. Secondly, it's not true that the man who does not know can uh, can deliver him. If you look at the end of chapter 7, remember this? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Uh, Lloyd-Jones and others would say that, you see, this man here, this man Paul, is uh, he's wretched. And he doesn't know who can deliver him. Who can deliver me from this body of death? Who can do it? Well, Paul gives the answer in the very next verse. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. But they interpret it as, as, see, he doesn't know who can deliver him from all of this heavy weight of sin. So he's right there, he's convicted, now he has sin upon him and he knows it, but he has nowhere to turn. How can I get this delivered? So, I say, strike three, you guys are out. I take the fourth view, which I do believe is correct, and if I didn't believe it, I wouldn't tell you. I'm not inspired, and I could be wrong. But uh, this section has everything to do with how we live our Christian lives and we can know what's happening to us. And it doesn't tear us apart and we can say, oh, wretched man that I am. I'm so disappointed with myself. Again, what do I do with it? Oh, Jesus Christ, He's my Lord and my Savior. He's the one that delivers me from this body of death. Ultimately, we are glorified. We're out of this. Even at this point, whenever we sin, we come to mind that we're delivered. From, from sin by Christ, right? Well, this fourth view is a very mature Christian. It's Paul. But it can be one who's even immature. It is a Christian. It's us. This concerns us in every way in this text as Paul relates it here. This view is purported by almost by most Reformed commentators. And you can go all the way back to Augustine who originally took it as a different view. I believe he took it as an unbeliever. But he later in his own life then came to the real truth. You know what I mean? Uh, There was Luther. 
who took this as the mature believer. Calvin took it as a believer. The Puritans wrote it as a believer. Oh, they really wrote on this. That was really very helpful to them. It's helpful to all of us. I am so thankful for this section because it tells me what is going on in not only the life of other Christians, but my own life. And we all get to that verse 24 and 25. This fourth view really explains it, doesn't it? It's a continual conflict that we have in this life. I wished I could tell you it's all over. I wished I could tell you that those people that reach a perfection in this life, like the Wesleyan tradition held, or much in the Wesleyan tradition, which would be Nazarenes, Methodist, many of the very the very early Pentecostals in the early 1900s said there was a, a way that you could reach a point where you would be perfect uh, apart from even... I, I, we have to admit that apart from Christ, we cannot do anything that is right and spiritual. We know that. We have to have the Spirit of God... You know, we are alive in Christ. Every one of us who are believers, we delight in the law of the Lord. Why would we be sitting here if we didn't delight in it? I can't wait to get another taste of the morsel of the Word of God, right? Doesn't it make your day, you wake up in the morning and maybe you're listening to, uh, you know, like if bot radio or something on internet or some of those favorite shows that you have and you listen to that, doesn't it give you uh, like a lift to start the day with when you hear truth, just a little morsel of it. Get you going, and all of a sudden you're in the right mode. It helps so much, doesn't it? Or just picking up the Word and just having a little, or a little bit of a, a meditation or a, a devotional, whatever it is that kind of picks us up. Uh... We want to do good, don't we? The only thing is, when we're honest with ourselves, we know that very often we do not do good. We don't keep it perfectly. We know that. We know we can't achieve what we're aiming at. And it's frustrating. Christians know there is something more. It's when Christ comes back. It's whenever we have our sins that are never daunting us again, ever. Did you know that sin has been dethroned in our hearts? We've already seen that. Sin, the penalty, the power of it, it is gone. It's not hanging over us anymore. But we did find out that, and this is what we're going to be looking at today, it's in the members of our body No matter what you do, it's still there. The presence of sin, in that sense, is still there. It dwells in the body of sin. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Our victory. Okay, let's let's grab our Bibles. I spent a long time in that introduction. I didn't really think it would go that long. 
But do you get why it is good to find out what these interpretations are in case you come up something against it? These are some of the same people. The people that disagree with you would say that you have two natures. And most of the Christian realm, don't be surprised, but they will say you have two natures. And I know it sometimes it, it is kind of a sem semantics, but it's not really a semantics because you only have one nature now, and that's the nature of Christ. Amen. He lives in you. What died? The old man. The old nature. And that's why I really kept hitting on that for these past several weeks. Once you get the idea that you died then the rest of this comes on through and it is there. And I know that I've been repeating a lot. Well, Paul does it here too. Christ does it. And you keep coming out with angles, but I'll tell you what, we are coming to the sunum bonum. This is why I'm trying to do it in one text, which I ordinarily wouldn't do so many verses, but I will say that it really makes sense. I think it really is true in our own lives and how we... Have victory, knowing this. Okay, let's read it. 7.14 For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage into sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So, now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin, which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And here's where he goes. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? All thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord! Exclamation point. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There's our battle. Father, great God, help us, enlighten us to this great truth. It's so simple. It's so profound. It can be very difficult. But Lord, as we read this through, we see it exactly what it is. It's the war that we have, that we'll have here till Christ comes back. Lord, help us to deal with it and to deal with our lives that we have. We have victory in Christ even now. In Jesus' name, amen.
Oh, this is all about sanctification. Sanctification is ongoing process in the Christian life. We are being sanctified. We have been saved, justified. We are being sanctified. We were sanctified, set apart at the moment we became Christians, and now we are still being sanctified till Christ comes back. James Montgomery Boyce, I thought, had a great definition for this. He defines that as the process of coming increasingly to see how sinful we are so that we will depend constantly on Jesus Christ. It should more and more make us see our sin and do what with it? Hate it. That's the idea. Boyce goes on to say the Christian life is a warfare within. Uh, You have the sinful flesh versus the spirit. Galatians 5 talks about the war of the flesh and the spirit. That's what uh, Boyce is saying here. And he's saying there's warfare against even external forces It's extremely important for us to get this. That's why I went on uh, such a rampage with my uh, interpretations and the introduction. We've now seen that, and I think seeing it and reading it, we don't have to spend so much time on the language and the context of the verse, because I think we have it. What you have on your outlines, everybody have an outline, and I think this should help us very well. Uh, kind of got it from Boyce as he broke it down. Because, and listen carefully here. What you have, an outline that is similar in every point that we make. We've got four points, but look at those first three. And what I want you to do as I break down each one of them In point one, you have A, B, C, D, or or you have one, two, and three. And we could have our A, B, C, and Ds, but I have one, two, and three there is how I marked it out, right? We have the Roman numeral, and that's our main main point, right? Or is is that say one there? Okay, all right, all right. And then after that, then we have the letters then, right? Okay, I've got my thing up here is outlined, but I fill it in, and by the time I'm done with it, it looks completely different than yours, but you have the general statement. The general statement is going to have a statement of the problem, right? Is that A? Okay, good. B is going to be the description of the problem or the conflict, right? So you have the statement, then you have the description of it, and then the third one, C, is why the problem exists. Now, that's found in our very first one, right? Look at the second one. Does it look like the first one? Although the, the, the very uh, main point says doing what we do not want to do. But what is underneath it? A is what? Statement of the problem. Is that just like point one? S- secondly is, or B would be, a description of the conflict and then why the problem exists. It looks like we're going over and over on this, and we are. You'll notice that. Boy, it says that a lot. I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I ought to do, right? Uh, And he tells, thirdly, why the problem exists. Well, that's the first two points. They look exactly alike. 
How about the third point? Well, it says it's impossible to do what we want to do. What are the ones underneath that? Statement of the problem, A, right? Which is like the other two points. Then B, what do you have there? Description of that problem or conflict. And then C, why the problem exists. And then point four, which we are probably not going to have uh, much time to spend on at all, but that's going to be dealing with victory. Once we see all that and recognize it uh, and know who we are in Christ, victory is in Him, it's all in Him, we can't do anything without Him. Uh, that's where our victory is found, praise the Lord, and it ends up on the very last verse. The last part of that verse is the, the conflict. It's the flesh, sarks, Versus the spirit, pneuma. That's our war. That's our problem. Why does the problem exist? Right? Okay, now here we go. We're going to uh, do our expository on this. For we know that the law is spiritual. The law is good. But I am a flesh. Okay, we have already seen in Romans 7 verse 12. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good we've already seen that the law condemns us and yet in the word of God we see that the law is good only Christ can do the law we cannot but that doesn't mean that it's bad it means that it is good it's holy it's righteous right We've already seen that point. So he comes back in 14 and he repeats it. We know. We know this. We don't. Christians don't go around saying, the law is bad. It's evil. It's wicked because it condemns us. No, it's good. I'm glad it does that. And we spent a lot of time last week saying, hey, this is what it's supposed to do. And it's supposed to really show how sinful you are. Matter of fact, it'll stir up sin so that you'll even sin even more. <laughs> what? What? God forbid, right? But it stirs it up. And what it does, it shows us, oh my, I really am sinful. I still sin. Okay, with that idea, we know that it's good. It's spiritual. But I'm a flesh. Alright, Paul says, I'm sold into sin. Okay, we have been redeemed. We have been bought out of slavery. We have a new man. Right? All those words. Forgiven. Declared righteous. We are a new man. We've been redeemed. But the new man, where there is no old man anymore, there's only a new man, the new man has to reside in a place called this body. It is unredeemed. Or this body is humanist. We are, we are humans after all, right? We are here. This is our humanness. It's unredeemed. We are sold into sin. The bodies are. I find myself voluntarily enslaving myself to sin. Whenever we've sinned, you know what we just did in our action because of our, our body, really? We are enslaved to that sin. But it says that we are no longer slaves of sin. Positionally, <laughs> you're a new man. You are no longer under the mastery of sin. But I'm a prisoner of the law of sin. It's speaking of what, what we talked about so much last week and the last few weeks, there's a difference between position 
and the context of the battle that we have with the members of the body. That's where we're at. We can be in prison. We can be held captive as far as the physical or the uh, even the capacities that we have and our, our faculties. Uh, I have, my inner man has been totally freed from it. The dominion of sin has been broken, hasn't it? New man versus the body of flesh. I am no longer captive to it. And that's why all of this that we read here is actually a lament. It's dealing with, we are lamenting over the fact of where we are at and what we have to deal with. It was a pain to Paul because of his remaining flesh that was still living. The flesh is not dead. When the flesh dies, we all are sad when we lose a loved one. And we should be. But at the same time, we should be joyful because that person now is not under that bondage anymore. If they were Christians, they now have relief and freedom absolutely where their body is not holding them back from doing good all the time. So, anyway... The more you see your own fleshiness, that is really what it comes down to. We lament over that. I think a question would be this, especially new Christians, will I sin less as I mature? And I would say, yes. Hang on. The more you know God's Word, and the more you know Him, the more you hate that sin. Matter of fact, you see clearly what that sin is and other sins. It's not that you're sinning more, you're probably sinning less. When you're maturing, you are sinning less, but now you're hating that sin more than you ever have before. You hate it, right? That I want to get rid of it. We have a greater understanding of the law. We have a greater understanding of the holiness of God. When that happens, the more you know about sinfulness, the more that you see your own fleshiness. And you go, I hate this battle. I want to win totally. I'm tired of this. That's normal. It's okay. It's okay. Just know what you're up against. By the way, in Romans 6, or Ephesians 6, he talks about the uh, armor. Put your armor on every day. All day long. Put your armor on. Okay. Uh, description of the conflict is verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. I am practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. <laughs> right? It sounds confusing at the same time we're saying, no, that says it as clearly as it possibly can. Whenever you read this for the first time, I've got a feeling as a Christian you're going, that's it. That's why. I I thought when you became a Christian it was all over. And then you find out, no, it's not. And then you find out from other Christians they have struggles too. And then we find out if Paul had that struggle, well, now I can identify with that. Identify with Paul, the Apostle Paul. Yeah, he was still fleshy. 
doesn't encourage it. <laughs> um, Paul, why are you saying this, that you're of the flesh? Paul, my, you're led by God's Spirit. You, you know, God is inspiring you to write this. Well, you see, a self-righteous moral man isn't going to admit what we just saw here. A self-righteous moral man, which is what he was, would say, I am doing the things that I know I ought to do. And I'm not doing those things I shouldn't be doing. He was self-righteous. He would deny this right here. A true Christian really recognizes this. What Paul didn't understand, he says here, but I do not understand. Because it's not what I want to do. I do this sin and it's not what I want to do. It's, that's so hard to understand. I don't understand it. I don't want to do that. You see, we have in us the new nature. We have the very presence of God dwelling in us. The soul of God is in us. The voice is loud in the believer because when we sin, we know it. We're convicted. And we go, why did I do that again? A burst of anger comes out of us and we're going, I know better than that. That's not like Christ. Why did I do that? I know better than this. We want to do what honors God, don't we? Don't we really want to do that? You better believe it. But you know what? We've not yet arrived. We want to be better. We've not been made perfect, regardless of what those Nazarenes and certain Methodists are saying, and holiness people, because they didn't arrive. They haven't arrived. And probably by just saying that they're perfect, they've just committed a matter of what I would call a lie. And also pride. Uh, you could probably go on and on. You see, the new man does not want sin to happen in his life. Let's go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. This is Paul. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to lie what lies ahead. Oh boy, that really helps. Don't ponder on the past. Set your sights on where you're heading and where you know to go and move on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. You know what the upward call is ultimately? The rapture. Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> As he was a dead man, and he, you know, he's a dead man walking, and he was alive, uh, came out of the tomb. Uh, we will 
arise to meet Christ. He will call us to that. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, mature, have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. (laughs) However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Do what you know to be right. You still have the battle. Doesn't take it out of it. But this is how we battle it. He says, keep on marching forward. Confess your sin. Don't live in the past. Move on. I like that. Don't dwell there. Okay, so we got a description of the conflict there, right? What I want to do, I do not do. Uh, and then we have why the problem exists in verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Oh, why the problem exists, that's what is here. This is put forth by Paul. He's saying, this is foreign to who I really am. Who am I? Well, I'm the new person. I am new in Christ. I'm the new man. It's not Him, the new man, that's sinning. Or that is sin. You don't find that new man with his sin there in that new man. But there is a body where there is sin dwelling. This is foreign to who am I. The sin that I do, it's not me. The new will never die. The new is above and beyond all of this. That's not the real me. Whenever I sin, that's not the new me. That's not the eternal one that is going to go to be in glory with God. It's an eternal seed that cannot sin. That is the real me, folks. Does that help to know that? Mm -hmm. The real me. And you're going to say, wait a minute. Are you saying the part of me where sin dwells is not the true me? That's it exactly. You say, well, that gives me... Well, then I can go ahead and sit. Well, no, Paul has already stated that. Well, then it is... How about like Gnosticism? Gnosticism did that. It's called dualism. Okay, the flesh is evil. It's wicked. All the ancient philosophers saw that. The flesh is evil, but there's a good part in the, in the man, in that soul. So therefore, even when he sins, it's not a big deal. Matter of fact, you go ahead and do it. It's okay because that's the body doing it. That almost sounds like what I just said. Are we into Gnosticism here on this text? And no way, Meginatal, right? It sure sounds like it, Dennis. Well... We'll go on further. He's emphasizing it here once. He will say it three times. We're on point one. The real me is the new man. But the problem is, is that sin is dwelling in this mortal humanness, this body. So that's why we have the problem of sin. Now we go to part two. It's going to get a little quicker here because we've already stated this. Remember that general statement that we had? It's basically what's said all the way through 23. Uh, 
verse 18 now, through 20. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh for the... Okay, we read, read that. The fresh willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Okay, does that sound familiar? Does it sound what we just sound like what we just read? Very close. Okay, he says, nothing good dwells in my flesh. The part of man where sin lies is in my what? Flesh. My humanness. The humanity. There's no good thing in and of ourselves. Always in this section, he limits the sin to the flesh. Not the new man. Not some old nature that is still there. But it's the unredeemed mortality, the humanity. So there's our statement, nothing good dwells in my flesh. Now, part B, that sounds like uh, Social Security or something. Part A, part B. (laughs) Okay, B, uh, we're not going to spend much. Verse 15 and 16 is repeated here uh, in and as we see in 18 and, and 19, for what I'm doing, I don't understand, for I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, and I'm doing the very thing that I eat, but if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. We read 18, we read 19, for the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil of the I do not want. <laughs> okay, uh, that's repeated. So there's the description of the conflict again. Now we're into part C. Remember as I said, this outline is broken down and the outline follows the same thing. Part 1, part 2, part 3, or part A, statement of the problem, part B, description of the conflict, and part C, why the problem exists. Why does it uh, exist? Well, verse 17 is repeated. Since my salvation, there is not the real me that is a foreign behavior. So I'm fighting an enemy that is, in a sense, alien. It's foreign to me. It's still there. I can't help it. I'm in this body now. But that's not me. When I do that, you're still responsible, but that is, that's not the old man there either. It's the members of the body... Uh, Part C says, I'm no longer the one doing it. Sin dwells in me. Okay, imagine it as some germ. Imagine it as some virus. That's easy to do today now, isn't it? COVID. Some virus. Some deadly parasite that is embedded in us. Do you see what it does? That's not me although it seems like a part of me because it's affected me in every way, right? Whatever that foreign thing is. It's not me. Okay, that was part two. Doing what we do not want to do. Part three. 
It's impossible to do what we want to do perfectly. And that is really hitting forth here starting in verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. But we don't hear that a lot, do we? Sounds scary. The one who wants to do good For I joyfully concur with the law of God, that's good, in the inner man, the new man. I joyfully concur, but I see a different law in the members of my body. Chapter 6 and 7 has been talking about that. That's the problem, members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind, which is good, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Not my new man. Well, a description of the conflict is found in 15 and 16. As we read it here in 18 through 20, the good that I want, I do not do. I want the law of God to be fulfilled in my life. I want to do what's right. I want to do what's holy. Believe me, I really do. I want to do what is just. That is what all Christians have. I just can't do it all the time. I want to, but I can't. As much as I don't want to sin, I want to do what is good. Is this an evidence of a godly man? Yes. This right here, it sounds so odd. One who is sinning. Paul. A mature Christian. And he's saying this, and it's such an evidence. The sin bothered him so much. So much. It was his own sin too. Even... With that sin living in him, he sees his only sin. He sees his own sin, and I think in that we see the maturity that is in Paul. Not in maturity, not a carnal Christian here. I could see how that can be taken as a carnal Christian, but that gives credence to people who say, "Hey, you can live in the flesh. You can have Jesus Christ as your Savior now, and later on in life, He can be Lord. Make Him Lord of your life." And believe me, all through my early years as I went to church, that's what I heard. You go to camp and you would hear, make Jesus uh, your Savior. Not Lord and Savior, but Savior. If you could now make Him Lord and Savior, that's even better. But make Him Savior right now. You say, well, did you ever hear that? Well, usually it would be Months later, or a few years later, somebody walked down the aisle and said, well, I'm a Christian. Jesus Christ is my Savior. Now I want to make Him Lord. What? You mean He's not Lord all the time? He can be my Savior, but that's carnal Christianity at its depth. Because it says, I can go ahead and live and not ever be a change in my life. Not even really be a new man there. But I'll make him Lord one of these days whenever I'm good and ready. Then he can totally take over. No, if he, if he's not, if you're not willing to let him take over completely, then what 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 good is it? It's nothing. It's not a carnal Christian at all, is it? Wow. 
I'm no longer undoing it. Sin dwells in me. I delight in the law of God, the inner man. You have an inner man, you have an outer man. Uh, I believe it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This really is helpful. Verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, this flesh, we're dying. Oh, we have so many things that are going wrong in our bodies, and I could point out, and I think everybody here, everybody here has a little bit of problems with their body. They're seeing that they're losing the capacity to do the things that they once did, right? This just really helps. It's decaying. Yet our inner man, look at this, folks, is being renewed day by day. Well, your body is really, really decaying quickly. It starts decaying as soon as you're born, to be honest with you. A lot of cells are dying. Of course, you know, a, a, a youth has, it seems like he's on an upswing and powerful, but eventually he he's really showing the decaying. Uh, but our inner man is being renewed day by day. And we have to like 17 for momentary light affliction while you're here. It's light. What is it doing for us? It's producing for us. It's working for us. It's for us. An eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We can't even imagine how good this is going to be when we're done with this body. Doesn't that give us joy in that. It's momentary. What we've got coming is eternal. Thank you, Lord. Oh, my. Uh, You know, we're being renewed. It's the truest and the purest essence of who we are. A new man who's being renewed. Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, The inner man is strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. That's right now. We have a new inner man. He's he's strengthened with God's kind of power. Dunamis, dynamite. And he says in our 21 through 24, in my inner being, I delight in the law. In my new man, I delight in it. I love God's Word. I love His commandments. You know, I see a different law, a different principle though, a different operating power. It's a different presence and he is, it is in the members of my body. It's my humanity. It wages war against the principle or the law of my redeemed mind. The new man. And it's waging war. And it'll bring all sorts of sights up to you. It'll bring all sorts of sounds and voices. Your hands will do different things. You will say things that you shouldn't be saying. Or there are things that you should be saying that you're not saying. And we go places. Places where we shouldn't be getting ourselves in situations that we shouldn't be, that we know that we are succumbing ourselves to sin. 
or we don't go to places where we should be going with God's, God's people, or going to people who need the truth, just giving the gospel. Uh, those are the things of the body. We're not using correctly and uh, they make us want to sin. And now we get to chapter 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, what a wretch! Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I've understood now that in a lot of uh, churches in their hymnals, they've taken that word wretched out. They'll get new hymnals, and wherever there is something that says negative about you, uh, they will take that out. Well, wretched pretty well explains it to me. I think of some skeleton with just awful, horrid look. A wretch that I am. And it's grace then comes in and saves us. The wretch. That's where John Newton got that. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. That's why the problem exists. Who's going to separate me from this body which is subject to sin? I'm sick and tired of it. The more you grow in Christ, the more you know Him, the more you know His Word, the more you know your corruption. The more you know that corruption is around you, it's in churches, it's in you, it's in the world. I mean, it's everywhere and you see it clearly and it really bothers you. Well, good. Because God is working that in you because you hate sin. And you want righteousness in this nation. Well, you certainly should. And whenever you see those evil things, used to be that way. But then take your mind all the way and say, oh, well, yeah, but this has got to happen. This is part of God's plan. He's going to come back and He's going to glorify uh, you and the whole earth. Eventually everything is complete. No more sin whatsoever. But you can see the sin is still there and it's even still in our own bodies even though we're Christians. And that's why the problem exists. The more we know about the Lord, the more we read about the Lord, the more we study about Him, the more we know Him, and the more that we grow in Him, we start to understand more what kind of a hatred that we have for sin. Have you noticed that in your Christian life? That's, that means you are developing in Him. You know why? Because He's doing it. He works in us so that we work it out. It's a process that's going on. We understand the holy law of God. We understand that. And the more that we see what the truth is, we see sin for what it really is. He wants us to really get that whole idea of what sin really is. We don't gloss over it lightly, do we? Wretched man that I am. As we get ready to close this out, as we're right at the end, uh, we notice that it ends on a high note. Just to end this and help us get a, get a visual, around Tarsus, around where Paul was born, there were some tribes of people. They lived there. 
around Paul, and he knew about this, and a lot of people didn't, even the Roman Empire. Whenever there was a murder, and they would catch the murder, they inflicted a terrible penalty on those kind of murders, on those murders, and what they would do is strap the victims, the one that they killed, those corpses they would strap to their body. They would be shoulder to shoulder, back to back, thigh to thigh, arm to arm. And this would be seen as a way to punish that murderer. They would drive the murderer then out of the community. The murderer could not take that body off of him because he is so strapped, so tight of the bonds, he could not free himself. You see, a few days like that, and the death of the one who had died because of the murder now becomes the death of the murderer. Because of that corruption. It's putrid. And Paul sees this sin that's in him or in his body, his members. He sees it as an alien. That's not me. Paul is alive. Paul sees him attached to death. Death, as written in 1 Corinthians 15, will be swallowed up in victory. Paul couldn't free himself, but he saw what death would eventually do. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. This is the time when we get rid of these bodies and receive a glorious body like unto Jesus Christ's body. That's what the Christian life is. We have great hope, don't we? Verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. Good. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. We hate that. You see, we have victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The deliverance comes from sins. We have the penalty of sin. Victory comes through Christ who defeats sin. The penalty is taken care of. Secondly, sin's power is taken care of. No longer does the power have over this new man. No penalty. The presence, what about the presence of sin? Well, it's in the members of our body. That's what we just said. But I will say, when our Lord and Savior comes back, no more sin's presence. Keep that in your mind. It's momentary light affliction right now. Even though all of this is true that we've looked at, even though I am in the inner man, even though I am a saint, that's who I am, I am inseparably linked to the unredeemed flesh. Not just my bones and my muscles and my glands and my senses, but my mind, my emotions as well. The vast reality of what humanity is, all the electrical 
We think of the atoms and the chemical components and all the influences that are all there in our humanists. They, they find their way into humanity. That's a residing place of sin. And sin leads to death. We died when we trusted in Christ. There's one other death. That's just that body. I'll never know the full deliverance until the body is transformed. Until then, the battle goes on. Let's pray. Father, great God, thank You for this passage that Paul wrote for to us. It gives us great clarity, even as hard as it seems. It's really not. Our minds understand this. We know full well about that war and the battle. And Lord, we want to depend upon the Spirit because that's where all of this is driven. Every time that we sin or think about it, we must put our eyes on Christ, put our eyes back at the cross, look at Christ, behold Him, the perfect one. And that is where we find our victory our victories in Christ. We can't do it. It is impossible. We cannot follow the law. The law is good. It's holy. It's righteous. Thank you, Lord, that you reveal that to us and it shows our sin. And when we see that sin, the more that we hate it, the more we want to be like Christ. And that is where we can mortify the sin depending upon the Holy Spirit and that power. Thank You, Lord, for this day of worshiping You and giving us clarity throughout this day of what worship is about and what our lives are about. And we know that it's ultimately leading to victory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Yes.